Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land and make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of a cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So, also, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, and we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand. Lord, we do ask that you would teach us this day from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As Pastor Mark mentioned, uh, and as you heard, uh, we have a very intense passage before us today. And for many of us, myself included, passages like this can be uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. I mean, we notice right away that Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. He's not worried about people's feelings, per se, or using this harsh language. He's condemning these religious leaders, and we can hear the repetition of the woes over and over. And so it is a unique passage to us. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been honest. He, he's spoken his mind. He hasn't worried about these things. And, and yet, this sustained attack on the scribes and the Pharisees isn't something that we've come to up to this point in the book of Matthew. And so, as we step into our text today, uh, we've got a little bit of work to do. We have to ask the question, what's, what's going on here? 
What's Jesus doing? And what is it that Jesus would have us as his people understand and learn? Well, one of the first things that we want to realize is that this is the last of Jesus' public, public ministry. That this is the last time that Jesus is going to speak to the general public. So he's had a public ministry. He's spoken for three years, and he's played a public role in society. He's, he's taught the crowds. He's fed those who were hungry. He's healed the sick, and he's confronted religious leaders. I mean, Jesus has made a splash, and when he speaks, people listen to him and to what he says. In, in, in the last couple of chapters, we've been in a series Uh, where we've really focused in on Jesus as the Messiah, as he's come back to his his city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of kings and prophets, the city of Zion, the city of God, where the temple of God stands in its glory. And what Jesus has found hasn't been what it's supposed to be. He's found destruction, not physical destruction, but spiritual destruction. The temple stands physically in all of its glory. But as we noted, it had fallen into the black market of corruption. The city was physically bursting with people. There's all kinds of people here to worship and hold the Passover. And yet spiritually, it's become a wasteland. Israel's many leaders, though they're rich, they're powerful, and they're wise in the eyes of the people, they're leading these very people into spiritual destruction. And so last week, we began looking at chapter 23, where we saw Jesus speaking directly to the crowds and to the disciples, and he was warning them about their revered religious leaders. He said to them, practice and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And as you could hear, as we read today, there's a shift in Jesus' language. He goes from speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees in the third person, saying, they do this, to now this week, he's speaking to them in the second person, the you, scribes and Pharisees. And so what are we to make of this change? Are we to think that that maybe the the scribes and Pharisees' ears were burning when Jesus was speaking about them, and they've kind of stuck their head around the corner, and Jesus has now focused his attention to them? I don't think so. I don't think necessarily this is what's going on here. I think the change in language is to help us as students of the Bible understand that there's something going on with the message more than we're signaling there's a change of the audience. I mean, this is public. Jesus is in the temple, and there's a good chance there are scribes. There are Pharisees, religious leaders, elders, Sadducees, and others who are in the audience. But his scathing rebuke is less about the individual scribes and Pharisees and more about the condemnation of the religious leaders in general and the hypocritical system which they now represent. See, here Jesus is acting as his role as as the Messiah judge, and he's pronouncing a verdict. I mean, you could think about it that Jesus is like the judge in a courtroom, and all the evidence has been given, and the witnesses have been examined, and now is the time for his ruling. And that's what the first thing that a woe is. A woe is a verdict condemning evil. 
It's the opposite of a blessing. I mean, week, well, not weeks, but months, maybe even years ago, we went through the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, and we heard all these blessings that Jesus spoke. Things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. As these blessings were an encouragement to God's people, calling attention to a heart condition, so woes are the reverse. They're the flip side of this. And we find in our passage these woes that are an indictment on and a lament over the heart condition that Jesus is experiencing and he's seeing here. We find woes in a number of places in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. We even heard one in one of our readings this morning from, from Paul. Uh, but we find them all over, and, and they're this response of God to blatant and continual evil that he sees. The evil of injustice that stands before him condemned. It incites his anger and he declares his wrath, his coming anger and wrath against sin. But mixed in with this anger is is another emotion that we see. It's this intense grief As God sees how evil has ruined both the sinner and the one who is being sinned against, the victim. While Amo marks the sure and coming doom that is coming as God's righteous justice will come down, it also implies one last moment of repentance, one last time before the hammer falls. It's like knowing that the hammer has been raised with the purpose of coming smashing down. It's going to pound the nail and bury it into the wood. And yet there's one last moment and only immediate drastic change can divert or stop this hammer blow. I mean, God is serious about this and we see it in the Bible in different places. Uh, We look at Jonah, for instance, and God had declared his justice was coming. He told Jonah, go in 40 days, this city will be overthrown. And it's not an empty threat that Jesus or that God is making through his prophet here. It's really going to happen. And yet, when the people of Nineveh repented, we hear that God saw what they did how they turned from their evil ways, and so God relented of the disaster that he said he was going to them, do to them, and he didn't do it. And so one thing that a woe does for us in our passage today is we know that it offers immediate repentance or calls for the immediate repentance of these scribes and Pharisees. See, in vivid language, Jesus awakens hard-hearted and stubborn and stiff-necked people. From other places in the New Testament, we know that among the early church, there were scribes and there were Pharisees whose stony hearts had been revived. And so we see that with these woes, a depth to God's mercy towards sinners, that God takes sin absolutely seriously, but equally so, God grants grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who repent, even at the last moment. But another thing that a woe does is that it reminds God's people of a destructive trap, or or it points it out. It's sort of a verbal way of creating this bright red flashing sign saying, danger, like stay away, be warned. See, the crowds and the disciples needed to hear Jesus' warning here. 
They needed to break away from their highly esteemed leaders and follow their one true instructor, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus wanted to be clear with them that his message and their message were not compatible, and the people had to choose. And so Jesus pronounces these seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. And we'll look at six of them today. And what is the charge to their wickedness? If we could just break it down into one thing, what is it that Jesus is calling out? Well, it's that they're hypocrites. We see the exact same formula used uh, six times. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, excuse me, exclamation mark. It is the sin of religious hypocrisy that Jesus is calling out here. And so we want to take a minute to just describe what are we talking about? What is a religious Pharisee? Now, sometimes we think about a hypocrite as someone who says one thing and does another. There's always funny examples that you can think of. Maybe uh, there's a frivolous spender who wants to coach you on how to save your money and invest it well. Or maybe a really unhealthy couch potato that wants to be your coach in teaching you how to eat right and exercise. Maybe it's a little bit closer to home for parents like me who might tell my kids, do as I say, but not as I do. Youth group kids got all over me after youth group last week when I wasn't wearing my seatbelt and was expecting them to wear their seatbelts. See, we often think of hypocrisy as as this sort of having double standards. But Jesus is using a little bit of a different definition here. Culturally, a hypocrite was an actor or or someone who played the stage, right? And we understand this. Many of us have been in plays. If you talk to some of our young people, they like to be in plays at school, right? And so when you go in and you audition and you're going to be in a play, you don't go in to be yourself, do you? No, no, no. They, They hand you lines and they hand you a script, And they hand you props and a costume and a mask. And they say, pretend to be someone else. Pretend to be something else than what you really are. We know this, right? Like Robert Downey Jr. isn't actually Iron Man, right? We know that Tom Hanks doesn't actually live in an airport terminal. And Russell Crowe is not the gladiator. He's not a ship captain. And he doesn't even work for the CIA, Right? They're, they're all actors, and they're pretending, and they're playing a part on stage. Right? They're hypocrites in the best sense of the word. Right? And the best actors and actresses make you forget that they're playing a part, that they in many ways become their character, and you think that's who they are. They take on fictional and fabricated life histories and backgrounds, personalities and characteristics. Some of them, the really good ones, can even change their voice so that they have an accent that matches the part that they're playing, which is always really frustrating for me because I have no idea what these actors and actresses actually sound like. We've all heard stories of, of actors who have gotten into their parts too much, gotten in too deeply with it, and they've psychologically blurred the line between fact and fiction, between reality and the character that they're playing. See, it's important for actors, for these these hypocrites, if you will, to be able to put the costume on, 
but then to remember to take it off later. That they aren't actually internally changed by the external transformation that they've put on. And this is the reality that Jesus is pointing out in these religious leaders, that they are playing religion, but not in proper relationship with God himself. That externally, they claim to be one thing, but the reality isn't reflected in their hearts. They are hollow shells, producing more hollow shells out of the people that they lead. And this hypocrisy is what leads to Jesus' anger in this passage. See, for us, we need to remember that true religion is a matter of the heart. And that moves from the inside out, like fruit that reflects the nature of a tree. And that when we reverse the order and we try and cover over the external, and we try and cover over bad hearts with good works, it's at best worthless, but at worst, it's destructive and deceitful hypocrisy. See, we must be careful to get, not to get into the business of simple behavior modification when what God requires are hearts that are submitted and open and yearning for Him. And so what are these traps that, that Jesus shows us uh, from the, the hypocrites? Well, what we'll do is we'll break it into three pairs and we'll look at two woes at a time. And so in the first two woes, we see that there is an indictment on hypocritical shepherds. And so if you look at our first paragraph in the order of worship, verses 13 through 15, we see that Jesus is condemning the teaching and the evangelism and the discipleship of the scribes and the Pharisees. That their mission is to teach people about the kingdom of God and to bring to, to God these people in the way that God has called them to do that. And judging by their appearance, they're actually doing a really good job here, right? The temple, if you look around, is Passover and it's crowded and there's lots of people here, lots of worshipers who have come into the city. They're from Israel and they're from all over the place. Historians will tell us that, that even though Judaism isn't known as a religion that's highly evangelistic, this time period was actually sort of like a high mark for the people of Israel, that many, many missionaries were sent out, and that in these missions, they were really fruitful in bringing people back to the temple. See, based on appearances, these leaders were acting like diligent shepherds, drawing people in. They were traveling, what does Jesus say? Traveling sea and land to find a single convert, to bring these lost sheep back to God. And yet, look at Jesus' judgment that we find says, you have shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't allow people to go in. You convert someone and then turn him into twice the child of hell as you. That they're acting the hypocrite here. See, Jesus looks at these religious leaders and he sees wolves in sheep's clothing. They're like the wicked shepherds that are prophesied in the Old Testament. And there's a picture in Ezekiel 34 where God speaks to such leaders. And he says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? But you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with the force and harshness you have ruled them. And three times he then tells them that you have scattered 
my sheep, that my sheep are lost. You have scattered them, and no one is going after them. See, when Jesus looks out at all these worshipers in the temple, and he, and he looks at the people of Israel, what he sees is a multitude of weak and sick and injured and lost sheep. And in his compassion, he looks for the shepherds to do their job, the leaders to meet the needs of the people that are so clear and evident, to feed and to heal and to bind up and to bring back. But instead, what Jesus finds is shepherds who harm and scatter, that slam the door to heaven while paving the road to hell. Looks can be deceiving, These stage actors were doing the opposite of the thing that they promised, the opposite of the thing God had called them to do. Jesus moves on in the second set of woes, and he indicts hypocritical lawgivers. And you can see kind of from the text that there's a few examples that Jesus uses, examples that sort of point to a broader way of understanding, interpreting the Scriptures, the first way that Jesus sees this is, is this example of binding and non-binding oaths. And you can hear it in the way that Jesus talks about it, that what the Pharisees had done was, it was they had sat down and they had determined which oaths were more serious than others. That certain oaths, like maybe the ones where you, you swear on the gold of the temple or a gift that's on the altar, are binding. Whereas if you swear an oath that's only on the temple or only on the altar itself, well, those just aren't as binding. I mean, if we think way back to when we talked about in Matthew chapter 5, it was like the, the Pharisees were teaching the people that it's okay to keep, not keep your promise as long as you're crossing your fingers. And we look at that and we say, that's ridiculous. Right? Ironically, through their careful study and speculation, the scribes and the Pharisees had twisted God's law so that it pointed 180 degrees out from what God had intended. In this law in particular, God had intended for His people to be honest and to keep their word, to let their yes be yes and their no be no. And yet the Pharisees in their own wisdom, foreign to the true wisdom of God, had created technicalities and categories by which they didn't need to keep their oaths. Rather than submitting to God's word, these leaders had devised a system, a grid that they could place over top of God's Word so that it said the things that they wanted it to say, even if God had intended something completely different. In verses 23 and 24, we see another way that these leaders had wielded God's law hypocritically. Jesus said that they tithed mint and dill and cumin. And what's the problem with that? And tithing is a biblical concept, Right? Sure, tithing is a biblical concept, but if you look at the Torah and what God had intended is He had called the people to give back from their crops, specifically from their oil and from their wine and from their animals, uh, to be a distribution to the poor and to the priests so that everyone was taken care of. And so God specifically told these people to give back from their abundant resources the things that these people had and, and gave them security in their lives. Now, if you think about it, mint and dill and cumin, 
They come in very small portions. It's just seasoning for food, right? It's like when my family a few years ago decided we were sick of buying big lots of cilantro from the store and watching it all go bad. We bought a little pot of cilantro and kept it alive for a while anyway. Uh, but it was just what we needed. It was, it was living, and we could put it on our windowsill, and we could water it. And, and what the Pharisees would teach to people is that we need to have a, a clear amount of cilantro, understand what we had there, and then take a portion of that and bring that as a tithe to the temple. That's not so bad, is it? You're bringing your little handful of seasoning to God as a tithe to be distributed? The problem wasn't that they took God's law too seriously, but that they were so fixated on the minutia, on the little things. And they were so fixated that they were applying these principles to the furthest degree while totally missing the heart of the matter and the purpose for God's law in the first place. See, God's law was given to God's people as an of his character, of his moral excellence, and for the promotion of, of big things, things like, like justice and mercy and faithfulness in society. See, the problem wasn't that these little things were unimportant, like God didn't actually care about the tithe. No, he does. But, but the problem was that they were majoring in the minors, that they let the little things cloud out the big things. That they were straining out, as Jesus said, the tiniest of gnats, but then swallowing camels whole. It isn't wrong to think through the practical and ethical implications of things. But it is wrong if we get so fixated on those that we miss foundational and important truths that God has clearly revealed. Thirdly, uh, in verses 25 through 28, Jesus indicts hypocritical and external religion. And he does so using some really clear uh, visual graphic examples for us. I mean, we could think about it um, with the bowls and the cups. Like, what would happen if at our house we just stopped cleaning the inside of our bowls and our cups and our plates? I mean, they'd be nasty. I mean, it doesn't matter how much you would polish the outside. It doesn't matter what chemicals you would use to make it shine or what Norwex rag you were going to use to clean the outside of these, these cups and plates. On the inside are our spaghetti and our oatmeal and our, and our cereal and our chicken and potatoes and our broth, like whatever. All of our leftover scraps would rot and stink and get full of mold and maggots and flies. It's a clear and graphic picture, and it's, it's clear to see what Jesus is saying. And then in the, the sixth woe, Jesus uses a very similar example, talking about the whitewashed tombs. And this would have been an example that, that the people could have looked out and seen right then and there. That at about Passover time, the, the, the careful Jews would go through and they would mark graves, and they would whitewash them and clean them up, so that when pilgrims came to town, they wouldn't accidentally come into contact with these graves. They wouldn't accidentally become unclean and not be able to participate in the ceremonies. And so that these people could look out and they could see this. I mean, it, and for our purposes, it would be like talking about a beautiful cemetery. That, that is, the grass has been cut. Someone has gone through and meticulously weed-eated the whole place. That all the gravestones have, are, have been polished and they shine in the sunlight. 
And Jesus says that the religion of the scribes and Pharisees are like beautiful cemeteries. What might look attractive from the outside is actually within. And the reason behind, the reason that it's there in the first place are corpses. It's dead. It's unclean and unfit for any of our senses. See, when the people looked at the scribes and Pharisees, they revered them. They esteemed them highly because these Pharisees looked great. I mean, they, they, they fasted twice a week. They prayed long and loud and publicly with beautiful language. I mean, they, they tithed on their, on their seasonings. And they traveled land and sea to go find people and make them into good Jews. I mean, when you looked at these guys, they had it all. It was commonly said that if only two people were going to get into heaven, one of them would for sure be a Pharisee. That if anybody was going to get in by their works, it was these guys. They put ordinary people to shame. They make us look like religious slouches. And yet here Jesus reminds us, like God reminded Samuel when he anointed David, that the Lord sees not as man sees, that man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The scribes and the Pharisees were religious actors, beautiful on the outside, but full of greed and self-indulgence, dead bodies, uncleanness, and lawlessness, what was actually inside of them. Now, we are not the Pharisees. Jesus isn't pointing at us and telling us, woe to you, people of grace, right? And yet, there's a reality, too, that being a hypocrite is sort of a default mode for us as well, just as being human. Like we don't have to practice being hypocritical because it comes pretty naturally to us. And it's hard for us to live by faith, trusting in God's grace and, and believing that that's actually more powerful than the facade that we have to feel like we need to put on. See, we could take each one of these woes and, and we could turn them over and over and over at and look at them and see how we too are prey to the temptations that Jesus points out in the Pharisees. We could think through common ways that we play act and try to cover over our inconsistencies, the ways that we focus too much on curbing our behavior and how we present ourselves to each other and in public while we neglect more important things like heart transformation. And there's a lot to glean from that. And that'd be good. It'd be healthy for us to use a passage like this as a mirror to help reveal to us our sins and inconsistencies and hypocrisy. But we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. We want to see the bigger picture of what's going on here. I mean, again, when we step back, we see what Jesus is doing is he is giving a verdict against the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, uh, these moral examples that the people hold so highly. And and these people, these, these leaders represent the old covenant people of God, whose job it was to bring people to God in God's ways according to God's commandments. But when the Messiah came to his own and he evaluated these leaders and the system, he found that things were really, really bad. The evaluation was, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, that there is a staggering fullness of corruption here. That while the religious leaders were tasked to create disciples, they failed in their legalism and hypocrisy. 
That instead of, of being a factory producing the children of God, they had created a factory for the children of hell, pumping out hypocrites that honored God with their lips, but whose hearts were far from Him. See, the time had come to replace this broken system. The time had come for the Messiah to usher in a new exodus, to break the bonds that held His people down and to set them free. See, the religious leaders were like the shepherds in Ezekiel that we read about earlier. But if you continue to read in that passage, uh, we hear something else. We hear no one is going out to get the sheep. And so what does God do? He sends a shepherd. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep. I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. I will bring them out from the peoples, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be, with the, she- I will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek out the lost. I will bring back the the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be prey. I shall set over them one shepherd, my shepherd David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. It's glorious in passages like this. So often when we hear about or think about religion and making ourselves right with God, we, we get in our head this refrain of, of do this and then do this and then do this and then do this. But in this passage, God is saying over and over again, behold, I myself will. I will. I will. I will. See, this is why Jesus had come. When the shepherds had scattered the sheep, the great shepherd himself stepped down. He took on flesh and became to us both the great shepherd and the sacrificial lamb as the payment for our sins and for our souls. Where hypocrites slammed the door to the kingdom and created children of hell, Jesus came as the door to the kingdom. The only way to the Father, through whom alone we can come to God and come to the kingdom of heaven through faith. See, by receiving Him, John tells us that we receive the right to become children of God. The lawgivers had twisted God's law, making it unrecognizable and hollow in their hypocritical legalism. But Jesus came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. See, at every point where the religious leaders failed, Christ succeeded. And His perfection wasn't external alone, but it was everything. That is, is God in flesh appearing, He was perfection personified in the flesh. In offering up His life, He has wrapped us with His righteousness And He has come to seek the lost, to bring back the straying, to bind up the injured, and to strengthen the weak. And so what do we learn? We learn that Christians aren't great, wonderful people. They're people that are covered by the blood of a Redeemer. Christians are people that don't need to hide, not because we don't have anything to hide, but because we have a Savior 
who has hidden it away for us in himself. That we don't need to play act. We don't need to pretend to be strong. We don't need to pretend that we're perfectly healthy or have all of life figured out. We don't need to try and fool God. We never could. And we don't need to pretend for each other and work hard to look good and then fool ourselves when we look at ourselves in the mirror. No, no, no. No, we're free to look at ourselves rightly. We're free to confess our sins, to look it in the face, knowing that when we confess our sins, we we bring it before the Lord, and He is righteous, that He is just, and He will forgive us our sins. That no matter what baggage we carry, no, no matter what our skeletons are in our closet, no matter what sins have tripped us up, or toxic toxic hypocrisy lives in our lives, And feels like it runs us sometimes. We know that our God not only takes it seriously. That he not only sees it. But he has paid the price for it. In himself on the cross. When he died for you and for me. See Jesus died for hypocrites. He died for children of hell like you and me. And now he calls us to follow him. To be with him. To live in his presence. And to be shaped by him. That's a blessed life. An exciting life worth living. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.